Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, Genesis 22, uh, we come to this um, specific portion of scripture that we're all very familiar with, or most of us are familiar with anyway, and we want to take time to read it, and then I want to jump into this story. So will you stand with me for the reading of the word this morning? Genesis 22. This is the word of God, authoritative. It's for our good. It's for his glory. It's the way that he has specifically communicated to us, revealed himself to us, revealed his ways to us. He's revealed himself in the heavens, right? But he's revealed himself specifically in this word. And so what we come to is, is, uh, um, is his revelation of himself to us this morning in Genesis 22. So let's expect that the Lord is going to speak to us right now through these words, these specific words. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the word, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after those things, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Jesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gehem, Tahash, and Maaka. This is the word of God for us this morning. May it please you, Lord, to grant us understanding, um, give us ears to hear, hearts to respond for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, without a doubt, this is a passage that most of us are familiar with. Um, story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the promised son, to prove his level of faith 
is just a somewhat shocking story. It's shocking especially to the modern reader, causing some to think that this is a sign or, or some sort of teaching that God actually is, is pro-child abuse in some way. But the story tells of God's rescuing at the last moment, indicating that Isaac was never really in danger. Easy for us now to see, of course, but for Abraham and Isaac, not so much. It's pretty dramatic. It's hard to forget this story. Uh, from the very beginning of chapter 22, we're told that God tested Abraham. It's clear that none of this is happenstance or Abraham having a confusing day or some sort of mental breakdown or God in any manner whatsoever purposing that Isaac would be sacrificed. It's specifically a test that God is giving to Abraham, a test that may very well cause, again, the modern hearer to reel back in abject horror, even those who gleefully allow for the sacrifice of the most vulnerable among us in the name of personal freedom, and yet the modern hearer is often unaware of that which was common in the nations of those ancient days. These were nations that were all around Abraham who, who worshipped uh, false deities, false deities that required sacrifice, human sacrifice. So it's not out of the blue that this would be heard in that day, this kind of thing. The modern hearer may also not understand the power and the authority and the holiness of Yahweh and far too easily set the nature of God himself aside. Nevertheless, the Bible is clear, and it's shockingly so, that this is a test that God has for Abraham. Abraham's faith in God, his trust in God, his belief in God. Do you really believe, Abraham? Do you really fear me? That, 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 that test, it's, it's a severe test. It's an intense test. Let us not think it's not intense. It is intense. It is not anything that Abraham understood too much in the moment. It was just, he didn't know it was a test. He just simply heard, go sacrifice your son. I wonder how you and I today consider the kind of severe sacrifice that God called Abraham to make. And I wonder how we would fare if we were asked to do something of that severity. Let's remind ourselves of where we've come from in our study of Genesis as it regards the players of, of the drama that we've come to this morning. For the last several weeks, uh, since we moved away from the Tower of Babel and began the second section of Genesis, uh, we were introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So God had... Uh, spread the nations apart. He had, he had, uh, he had given them over to um, false deities and all of that. And, and, and here God has promised in Genesis 12 to fulfill a guarantee in Genesis 3 that he would actually, through a line, redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever and bless the people of this world through the line of Abraham. So in Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 18 and later on in our text today, the promise had been given um, repeatedly. The promise that for some 25 years had just kind of been, wait, they'd been waiting for for so long that the promised son would be born through Sarah, who herself was 90 years old. And the conception of that son was absolutely miraculous brought about the laughter that we spoke about last week and Sarah, this laughter of rejoicing that, that people who would hear this story, even this morning we would hear this story, not laugh by way of mocking, but laugh by way of God is so amazing. His mercy is so rich. You'd think that the joy of the promised son uh, would just kind of last a bit longer, but, but immediately after that comes the events of this chapter. Now, years had passed in the timeline of what we see between Genesis 21 and 22, but for the reader, like us this morning and like Israel on that day as they sat on the precipice of the promised land years later, it was like, promised son, sacrifice your son. So we go from rejoicing in God's provision of the son, the fulfillment of his promise, finally after 25 years of Abraham and Sarah waiting in, to, to, to wonder, what in the world is God doing? What, what's he about by asking Abraham to do such a thing? 
And at this point, Isaac is more than likely somewhere in his teen years. We'll see that he's strong enough to carry enough wood up the hill to be sacrificed. So, so Ishmael, the other son, son of Hagar, we talked about last week, that same, that same Hagar had been gone for about 10 to 15 years-ish, somewhere in there. Isaac has been Abraham's only son now for more than a decade, and, and you might imagine Abraham has grown very fond of him, very close to him. Um, so with that reminder of some of the context, let's jump into the text. In verse 1, we read this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He, that is God, said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And we'd be right to imagine that when Abraham heard this, he, he, he must have. He's a human man. He's a, he's a father. He must have been sick to his stomach. <laughs> really? Let's not think that Abraham is so different from us. He loved his only son, as is intimated in the way they speak to one another in their text. And they're walking together in the text. They're, they have a relationship. And yet the God that had promised his son and provided the son for him is now seemingly changing his mind and wanting Abraham to give him back, per se. And so I think, just feeling it myself, uh, Abraham surely felt sick to his stomach. The confusion must have been real in some way. The, con the confusion being that God is commanding Abraham to do something that seems to go entirely against his nature as the God of life, the God of provision, the, the, God, who, the God who gives life, the God who gave the son. And somehow this goes against everything that Abraham knew of him. How could God, who sees human sacrifice as an abomination of the nations and their demonic false deities, and he, think about what he says in Jeremiah 32, it, how could God command Abraham to do that which he calls an abomination. And not only that, but remember that God made with Abraham a covenant. He, he had promised. He had promised the son. He had promised not only the son, Isaac, but he had promised redemption for the nations through this son. He had covenanted with him. He had, he had walked through the covenant. He, he had made this covenant. This is the God of promise, the God that said, trust me, trust me, trust me, believe I'm going to do this. But now God's telling Abraham to offer up his son, this promised son, as a, as a sacrifice. How could that be? It would seem to contradict everything God's been promising Abraham through the past several decades in his life. Now it's rather simple for us to imagine the temptation to fear and sadness and confusion that we would feel, and, and certainly that Abraham felt. Put, put yourself in his place as best you can. How, how, would, how, would, you, how would you feel? But, but how does he respond? Well, first, it, it's important that we take note that he seems to have a kind of relationship with God where he knows the voice of God. God speaks and he says, here I am. He hears his voice, he knows, he responds to it in obedience, much like he did in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram to go from his country and his kindred and his father's house to a land that he will show him, to a land he didn't know, to a land he was not comfortable with. But God spoke, God said, I want you to leave, and he, what did he do? He left, he obeyed, he went. He done, he did all that the Lord had told him to do. So verse 3 in our chapter today tells us that Abraham doesn't seem to hesitate. Uh, he, he, he doesn't argue with God in some manner. I, I, think, I think that I would argue a little bit. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that would be true of you as well. But Abraham doesn't seem to argue with God. At least it's not in the text. And, and the, the, the point of the text is, is pointing towards the fact that Abraham is a significant man of faith. So he doesn't hesitate, doesn't argue. What we see is he just gets up early in the morning and he heads out to do precisely what God had commanded him to do without having all the answers. And in that obedience, even amid the potential confusion and fear and, and sadness, we see significant faith and trust in God and his word. There, there was no confusion 
There might have been confusion on what was going on, but there was no confusion in the God that he worshipped. There was no confusion of who that God was. Certainly, there would be a temptation to wonder, but there, in his obedience, there was, a, there was a reality of, like, I trust him. I don't know what he's doing, but I trust him. And this faith continues to be seen further along in verses 4 through 8, where we read that three days into the journey, he said this to the other. So, so think about those three days. 72 hours uh, of what, seems, what just seems like it would be 72 hours of dread. So three days into the journey, he said this to the other young men traveling with him. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. We'll come, come back to you. Now, where, where is faith in that? Well, faith is in the reality that he knew that he was going to come back with the boy. He trusted God so much, even though there was the call to sacrifice his son. He had faith to like, he's We'll be back. We'll be back together. This is not just positive thinking. This is, this is faith. Abraham seems to be anticipating that even though God has called him to sacrifice, that somehow he and Isaac would return to them. After three days of, of working through uh, things with God on his way to this very spot, he was convinced that the outcome of this journey would not be the end of Isaac. Well, how so? Well, Abraham gives us clarity in verse 8 when he says, when he tells Isaac that he believed that God would provide uh, for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. He, he has faith that God is the provider. He has faith that he will provide for them. And really what we're seeing is remarkable faith. There, there, was, there, was, there was nothing before his eyes to, to cause him to, to have kind of any hope that this was not going to happen. But he knew his God and so he trusted him and believed on him, that he would provide for him, for them. It's a very difficult situation. Um, it's not super spiritualized things. A very, very difficult situation. And yet we see remarkable faith in the God over the situation. So when we come to verse 9, we're told that it was here where the rubber was truly meeting the road, that Abraham fully followed through in his faith. There's, this was no faith in word only. Yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. This is faith in action, as, as true faith always is. This was absolute and entire obedience. He prepared everything for the sacrifice. He actually bound his one and only son, the promised son, the son of the covenant, the one that he loved so much. I might imagine that he was weeping as he was tying him up. And certainly Isaac had some level of faith in this as well. He's not, he's not the center of the story though. Isaac weeping, his dad weeping, not understanding entirely, not knowing what is happening or what's gonna happen except that they trust God together. In verse 10, Abraham took the knife to slaughter Isaac. It's unbelievable. And it's just simply hard for us to understand. But what we're meant to see here is the significant faith of Abraham in God. Significant trust. This is, this is a man of faith. Significant belief and hope and assurance that Abraham had of God. Do you, do you see Thankfully, at, at, at literally the last possible moment, God speaks again. And Abraham hears his voice, he knows his voice, and he responds by listening to his voice, and he is told to go no further. Verses 11 and 12 speak of, of this. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So it's, it's not until this point, it's not until this point in the story that Abraham knows it's a test. We know it's a test. We've known from the very beginning. So it's just not that big of a deal for us. But for Abraham, he didn't know. He didn't know until this point. And he might imagine the relief. A, a test, though, that would determine what, specifically? 
What's so important that a test like that would be given to Abraham? Well, the angel of the Lord, speaking from heaven, says that he now knows that he actually fears God, seeks first his kingdom, trusts him, truly believes him. Now, let's just consider for a moment, this is, this is not a, a full deal of this, and there's disagreement on this, but just consider who the angel of the Lord is for a moment. It seems clear that the angel of the Lord either, either is one who speaks so closely for Yahweh as a messenger of Yahweh, or he is in some way Yahweh himself. Um, there's a helpful explanation uh, in the Bible Project that I just want to quote. It's, it's, uh, it's from a, a woman named Carissa Quinn. She says, The consistent way that the authors refer to the angel of the Lord as both Yahweh and distinct from Yahweh not only helps us understand this mysterious figure, but it also makes a profound claim about the identity of Yahweh, namely that Yahweh himself is a complex being. She goes on to say that understanding the complex portrayal of the angel of the Lord prepares us to understand some significant overarching realities and truths, doctrines throughout Scripture. Central things like Jesus himself claiming to be one with the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, yet he was distinct as the Son. Or the truth of the Trinity where we see that God is one, yet three distinct persons. And of course it helps us understand the character and identity of Yahweh, that he is a complex unity, one who is both unified and diverse, near and above all. What we see in the angel of the Lord is brought to a culmination in the person of Jesus who, who draws near to humanity in order to draw us near to God. So, so this is, this is uh, a complex situation. When you see the, the angel of Yahweh, the capital L-O-R-D, um, slow, slow down in the text. Consider um, that there's something really amazing happening here. God's intimately involved in these things. This is the word of God. Even if it was just an angel, this is the word of God spoken through the angel to Abraham. Okay, Yahweh is the one who tells Abraham to go one way or the other. He's the one who tells him what mountain to go to. He's the one who stops Abraham at the last moment, saying that he now knows that Abraham fears him and, and was truly surrendered entirely to him. Why? Well, because we've walked with Abraham a little bit, haven't we, for the last number of weeks. And, and he's kind of up and down in his faith. He's, he's someday, sometimes he's like super faithful, other times not so much. And he, he lies and he tries to make his own way in things. But now, um, it seems very clear that he fears the Lord. Throughout our whole time in the first half of Proverbs this summer, we, we kind of took some time to talk about the fear of the Lord. And, and it's more than what I'm going to say here, but it's, but it's at least this, that it's, it's a, a, a phrase that's described as a person's wholehearted devotion to God. Their trust in his goodness, a trust in his nature, a full-out belief that he is who he says he is, and, 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 he, um, and his word is true, and it does not return empty. And, and so he is fully trustworthy. And so I fear him. I fear the Lord. I live, I live not, in, not, in a, um, not in a fear like this, but a, but a fear like he is creator, and I am the created and that creator is entirely good, and he is entirely just, and my whole, my whole life is in his hands. So fearing God is simply recognizing that and, and bowing and following, surrendering, fully devoted to God, trusting him more than anything else, being nothing in Abraham's life or our life that stands in the way of his trust of God, not even his son, his only son, the son he loves. The central idea of this passage is that Abraham demonstrates remarkable faith in God and he is willing to offer up 
his son, his only son, the son he loves, as a sacrifice. And remember, through the past 10 chapters of Genesis, we've witnessed those good things and bad things about Abraham. But what we've come to today is that he is absolutely trusting God fully. He's, he's a man of faith. His faith is not shaky in this text. His, his faith is steady. His faith in God is sure. Instead of trusting in himself like he's done in the past or his own cleverness, Abraham puts his total trust and confidence in God. And it's for this reason that the author of Hebrews says this about Abraham in chapter 11. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so speaking of the same thing that's happening in our text, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, Abraham considered, that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he... He did receive him back. So even if, even if, how, how does he know that he's going to come back to these guys that are down the hill with the donkeys? How, how does he know? He knows that God is either going to provide something else, he's going to stop him, and we'll be back, or, or if, if I have to go through with it, God will raise him from the dead. Now, that's, that's a crazy amount of faith. Ultimately, Abraham, again, really had no idea what was going to happen. He didn't know if God was going to provide another sacrifice or end up bringing him back from the dead. What he did know is God, and he trusted him entirely. He knew that one way or the other, God would show himself to be faithful. And so he placed everything, absolutely everything. There was nothing, there was nothing that he kept from him. He placed everything in his hands. He, he, entrusted, he entrusted his very son to God. He trusted him entirely and he was willing to surrender the entire situation into God's hands. And so what is it we see in the rest of the passage? We see blessing. We see God blessing Abraham and his offspring again, promising again, just another time saying, yep, this, this is going to happen. I'm going to make this, this happen. This is my covenant and this covenant is, is, is going is to be fulfilled. And, and listen, we, we sit here this morning worshiping and going to enjoy the Lord's Supper in just a few moments because God is faithful to his covenant. Not, not because you are. Not because Abraham was. But because God is. And he is trustworthy. Well, what about you and me? If we've been brought to the point in our lives where we are actively surrendering to God entirely. Think of these cups. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. Have we been brought to the point where, we, where we've surrendered entirely to him? Have you made the decision to let God direct your life rather than you trying to direct it? This is no super spirituality that we're talking about. This is what we're called to. Do, do you trust him entirely? You, you want to you ask yourself a question. You want to you bring some application Here's, here's, a, here's a simple application. Ask yourself this question. Do you trust God entirely? Do you believe all of his promises? Do you find your hope in him? Do you find your rest in him? This is no rhetorical question. This is no just theoretical question. Throughout your life, and perhaps, perhaps in your life right now, amid very real difficult situations you're walking through, it will be revealed whether you're walking in faith in God, or, and surrendering everything to him, or, or not. Now, if you've known me for any length of time, you know that um, I'm from Canada, and I, I, um, I love hockey. And so for years, I'm a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and uh, there, there was a goalie named James Reimer. This, is, this was a story that I read this past week, and and, uh, and so I latched onto it because it was a Toronto Maple Leaf goalie. And, uh, but uh, actually, he... Toronto traded him, and so uh, he traded, they traded him to San Jose. And uh, but but James Reimer is a is a um, a solid, born again follower of Christ. Um, he's not irritatingly out there. He's just very very much confident in God and trusts God, and he communicates uh, when appropriate. Um, well, there's 
one night, uh, as happens with most NHL teams, that there was a gay pride night during one of their games. And so they had to wear a, all the, all the people on the team were supposed to wear a jersey with, with rainbow and, and all, all that on it. Um, well, James uh, refused to wear the jersey due to his trust in God and his word. And, and here's what he said. And he said this at great risk of his career, of, of respect, of all of this. This is what he says. Just be up here. He says, under the umbrella of the NHL's Hockey is for Everyone initiative, the San Jose Sharks have chosen to wear jerseys in support of the LGBTQIA community tonight. For all 13 years of my NHL career, I have been a Christian, not just in title, but in how I choose to live my life daily. I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins and in response asks me to love everyone and follow him. I have no hate in my heart for anyone, and I have always strived to treat everyone that I encounter with respect and kindness. In this specific instance, I am choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible, the highest authority in my life. I strongly believe that every person has value and worth, and the LGBTQIA plus community, like all others, should be welcomed in all aspects of the game of hockey. Now, Reimer understood what was at stake. I have so much respect for this, this young guy. He, he knew how people react to such statements. Or just not even wearing a jersey like that. It, it's, it, you, you can't hide it. It becomes, it becomes an issue. Comment sections uh, grow large and vitriol is communicated. He, know, he knew that, that his, his, you know, his future in hockey might even be at stake. To him, though... He surrendered the entire situation to God and said, my life is in your hands. What was first in his life um, certainly could have been hockey. But, but it wasn't hockey, and it isn't hockey. He was trusting God and believing on him and his word no matter the cost. During this month, um, this, this month is the... Um, where we, where we will do this next week, but we want to pray for the persecuted church around the world. Um, the reality is, is that these dear brothers and sisters around the world are, are counting the cost every day. Um, their lives are on the line, and they're choosing to live for God and for Him alone at great risk of their very life. I talked with two men this week for an hour each. One uh, is named Ertugrul, and he lives in Izmir, and the other one is uh, Hakan, who lives in uh, Moldova. And both of these guys have remarkable testimonies, both of which came from like, strongly Islamic conservative backgrounds who had given their life to Christ and whose lives, in some way, along the line, have been spared but, but were endangered. These men, these men have counted the cost. These men have surrendered to the Lord. Um, the one in Moldova, Hakan, he, he, is, uh, he is Turkish and his wife is Moldovan. And because he was preaching the gospel um, and uh, uh, teaching it and, and very boldly so, um, he was directed out of the country. Uh, his wife wasn't given a renewed visa and so they had to move to Moldova. It was either he moved with her or he... Uh, separated from her to stay and to do the ministry, you know. So he did what was right and went there. But he's counting the cost. There are plenty of other kinds of situations that reveal whether or not we're truly walking in faith and surrendered to God. The, the vast majority of them are, are not near as dramatic as any of the ways I just mentioned. For, for example, God calls us who are Christians to live as missionaries in this world, to, to, to share our faith with people, but, and, and to know that when we share our faith, there are offensive pieces of the gospel, not offense by, by us, the way that we communicate and the, the style by which we communicate, or, or the, the, the angst in our voice or the, the whatever. It, it, is, it is that the gospel is narrow. The, the, the way of Jesus is narrow. And so there's a fence there that's potential. And so sometimes we shrink back. We're, we're scared of the response. We're scared of the, you know, the visual comment section um, of life. And so we end up not sharing, not, not, not doing what we're called to do. Um, sometimes relationships change within families because the gospel has to be shared. Um, I know 
Joy and Sassy uh, have experienced that with a, with a family member. S say anything more about Jesus and I'm not coming. So we have a choice to make. Will we shrink back from doing what God calls us to do, and that is sharing the truth, sharing, the, sharing our faith, interacting with people, engaging with people, evangelizing people, or, or, or not? Will we surrender the situation and the relationship to God by faithfully sharing the message God calls us to share and leaving the results to him? Or perhaps you find yourself tested financially. Uh, Joy and I experienced that a number of years ago, in particular when finances were so very little, and yet we felt God calling us to give more, and it didn't make sense. But God proved himself faithful as we walked out as best we could in trust of God's provision. We stood at a crossroads on numerous occasions. Will we live by fear or by faith? Do we believe the promises of God that cry out to us to store up treasures in heaven, or don't we? Do we, do we give generously for the sake of the gospel or no, not so much? Will, will we disobey the word of God that leads us to generosity and our intent to take care of ourselves somehow by making our own way or will we surrender our financial situation to God with the confidence that he will indeed be true to his promises, that he will bless us and take care of us and provide for our needs at just the right time? The stories are plentiful um, in, in, our, in our lives of, of God's faithfulness to us amid sacrifice. I know many of you have experienced similar things, especially if you've lived for some time. If you ever have an opportunity to speak to Tom and Nancy Heffernan, to sit down with, with, uh, with them, or to, to reach out to them and ask for a, ask for a story, they, they will certainly share how in poverty they um, learned to give and to trust God for his promises and how God has blessed them and they continue to live in that reality of God. Uh, of, of, of just following God's will, no matter what the situation uh, is, which is precisely what they're doing now in a different way uh, with the things that they're going through. Perhaps you're single, and you just really, just really, really want to get married. That's a good desire, and, um, but it's not happening so far. And so you might be tempted to to kind of broaden out the, you know, broaden out the, the, the checking things out. And, and all of a sudden, there's like, um, well, maybe I don't need the guy to be like totally sold out for Christ. I mean, he goes to church. I can, I can, I can, I can, I can live with that. Um, whereas God would be saying, man, male, female, opposite sex. Um, look for someone who loves Christ with all their heart. Don't settle for something less. Uh, just, those are just a few tests that, that come our way, but the tests of faith are many. What, what's taking place in your life right now where you need to demonstrate faith in God, trust in God? What, what's going on in your life? Take, take, take just 20 seconds to think about that, to write that thing, what, write that down. What, what is that thing? What is that test? What is, what is that thing that, that you need to do in your life where you need to demonstrate faith in God? What situation do you need to surrender to the Lord? The reality is that many times we have things in our lives that we simply hold on to, that we need to let go. There, there are things that we tend to set up as kind of, they, they turn out to be kind of idols in our hearts. Those, those idols can be small or they can be big, but they're truly, really idols in our lives. They, there are things in our life that serve to displace, to, to truly displace um, God from his rightful position. That we, that we place above God in, in, in some way. So, so it's, there, are many, there are many things that could possibly be that. Anything that we love more than God, anything that we trust instead of trusting God, anything that we hope for or hope in or hope will do for us something that in reality only God can do. What, what, are, what, are, what are those things in your life? We'd, we'd expect Abraham to love his son. Loving your son is not an idol. 
But loving your son more than God, God says himself, doesn't he? Um, um, you will have no gods above me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And love your son. God reminds Abraham that nothing can take the place of God in his life. His hope was to be in God of the promise alone rather than in the son of the promise. Did you hear that? Hope was to be found in the God of the promise, not in the son of the promise. It's an easy thing to mix up. Place your hope in the gift and not the giver. To highlight something that God gives us rather than the God of the gift. So as we think about the passage, we should examine our own hearts and ask ourselves what has taken over a rightful place of God in our lives. Are there things that are inhibiting our ability to follow God faithfully and to live lives that are surrendered entirely to him? It could be a desire for power and influence over others. It could be, it could be desiring to be loved and respected by a certain person or a people. Perhaps it's having a perfect family. Perhaps it's, it's uh, having a family that doesn't struggle. Perhaps it's being seen to have a perfect marriage. Perhaps it's being in the in crowd. Perhaps it's having a specific amount of leisure or comfort or pleasurable experiences in your life. Perhaps it's controlling um, yourself. Just got to control myself and control things around me. Perhaps it's the feeling of being needed or wanted by others. Perhaps it's the need to have the protection of a person to keep us safe. And perhaps it's being completely free from obligations or responsibilities of caring for someone. Perhaps it's being highly productive. Perhaps it's being recognized for your work and accomplishments. Perhaps it's wealth. Perhaps it's financial freedom. Perhaps it's your adherence to morality and your felt need to be seen as morally superior to another people or another person, another people. Perhaps it's your desire to be independent of any organized religion and just you're just going to live by yourself and it's just your thing. You, you, you'll, you'll live good, thank you very much, I don't need God. Or perhaps every time you look in the mirror, you just gasp either in, in wonder or horror. You desire to look a certain way so badly. The, the, the list, of course, could go on and on. The, the, not everything is entirely bad, right? But as Paul Tripp said so repetitively in, in many of his books, he says this, remember the biblical principle of idolatry, desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. So again, these are the things that get in the way of us living lives of faithful obedience and absolute surrender to God. Which, which ones are a particular struggle for you? That application, right? Once you've identified what those are, understand that God calls you to surrender those to him. Purposefully relegate them to their proper place so that you are loving and serving and treasuring God above all. Now let me stay here just for a moment longer. The primary reason that, again, placing anything before God is bad is because it breaks the grace commandment, right? And breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. Placing other things above God is a serious matter. But let's take a little bit of a, a different look at it. It's simply just disobeying the commandments. The, the problem with these idols is that they will never satisfy it just they won't satisfy. They're broken cisterns is what Jeremiah calls them. They've, he says Israel had forsaken God, but forsaken him. They had hewn for themselves cisterns. They've, they've despised him. They've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters, and they've, they've hewed for themselves cisterns that hold no water. They're, they're idols that hold no water. There's, there's, there's just things that don't satisfy, and yet we go after them, and we go after them, and we go after them when God, the living water, is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Well, I don't want to find rest there. I want to find rest here. No, find rest in God. Rest in the Lord. The Lord alone will read Psalm 62, part of it, in just a moment. Not only do our idols never, ever truly satisfy us, they also end up enslaving us. So it's not just a matter of, of not satisfying. They, they further dissatisfy. They further take us into enslavement. They further take us into that kind of 
almost anti, anti-God and, and like finding hope. And so we're just like, this is all we can do. And God's saying, lift, lift your eyes. From where does your help come from? Take your eyes off the idols. Despise the idols and cling to God. Don't despise God and cling to idols. Well, let me close by going to the gospel connection here, and it's, it's clear. God didn't ultimately require that Abraham follow through with sacrificing his only son, Isaac, who was the son of the promise. But what God did not require of Abraham, he did entirely intend and plan and purpose to do himself for all who had placed their trust in him. When we look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it serves as a clear reminder of the unfathomable love of God for his people that would lead him to give up his own son, to not withhold his own son, but to give him up for sinners like you and me. Just as Isaac carried the wood of the sacrifice to Mount Moriah, Jesus carried the cross, the wooden cross, up the hill to Calvary. Just like Isaac submitted to the will of his father, Jesus also for the joy set before him obeyed the will of the fathers. He laid down his life for our sins on the cross. You know, when Abraham was going to sacrifice, God said, go to the land of Moriah and go up to a mountain that I'll tell you about. King Solomon, 2 Chronicles, says that he built the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And then consider that Jesus was crucified just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, right near the temple on Mount Moriah. And it's just amazing to think that Jesus was sacrificed in the same area as Abraham and Isaac's situation was. Still, there's, there's more than just the purposeful similarities between Isaac and Jesus. In verse 13, right after God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, our text tells us that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so take note of the words instead of for a moment. Abraham offered up the ram Instead of Isaac, he was going to offer Isaac, but, but he instead took the ram. And it's here where we see the heart of the good news of Christ Jesus in the gospel. Just as the ram was sacrificed in Isaac's place, Jesus bore the judgment for our sin on the cross. He was sacrificed instead of you, instead of me. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He became our substitute He didn't die for his own sin. He took our place. We were the ones who deserved to face God's judgment because of our sins. But in his love, the Father sent Jesus, the Son, his one and only Son, his his Son, his only Son, the Son whom he loved, to suffer that judgment in our place and as our substitute. And yet after Jesus died, was buried, he rose again to new life. The result that he's now able to save everyone who puts their faith in him trust in him, belief in him, surrendering their life to him, fearing God. When we put our trust in Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, he rescues us from both the penalty of our sins and the power of our sins. So just as Abraham displayed the uh, faith in God in our text today and was commended by God, uh, today we're called to display faith in Jesus in order to be commended by God, be given the gift of salvation. And that faith looks like not simply a decision in one moment in time, but a life of surrender, day by day, moment by moment, surrendering to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, believing on Him. So have you yet come to that place in your life? Have you put your trust in Jesus, surrendered your life to Him, and so experienced the rescue and redemption He offers? If not, He invites you to do so right now, today, to place your hope and trust in him. If, if you have placed your faith in Christ, is there anything in your life that you haven't surrendered entirely to the Lord? What is that thing or what are those things he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him? 
He calls us to come and die to ourselves and to live to him. He calls us to renounce all that we have that we might fully or truly be his disciples. Here's the main thrust this morning, and it's in the form of a question. It's kind of a statement and a question. The trustworthy king has provided for your redemption. Will you surrender all to him and trust him with your life and your family and your relationships and your finances and your future? He he has provided for your redemption. Will you trust him? Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son or withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We worry about so much. He died for us. He did not withhold his own son for us. We can trust him for everything else. If we can trust him for our eternal salvation, we can trust him for the next paycheck. He who did not withhold his own son for us is the same one who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the God who did not withhold his own son. He's doing this. That he who did not withhold his own son for us is the same who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He did not withhold his one and only son. He gave his one and only son so that if we believe in him, if we trust him, if we have faith in him, we will be forgiven and given eternal life. He who did not withhold his own son for us is the same one who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He who did not withhold his own son for us is the same one who said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Jesus Christ, him crucified. He is our hope. We cry out with the psalmist as we surrender all to the worthy one, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him. At all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. May we trust him. Have faith in him. In the fears that we have, in the the finances, in our relationships, in this country, in this world. Um, May our eyes be fixed on him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises will never fail. He who began a good work in you will complete it. All of those things. This is our God, the one in whom we are called to trust. So may we be a people who trust him and believe on him.